Well, more than a month ago now, I introduced this expository series from the book of Ecclesiastes entitled, Living Life in Perspective. And in this, these weeks that have succeeded that, we have been looking at this often perplexing and troubling book. It doesn't give us the full and whole story of the Bible, but it does give us a lot of things to ponder and a lot of things that even may raise more questions. It's a book about, indeed, about ultimate questions. Why are we here? Why are we here? Where are we going? Is there really any meaning? Is there any significance? What happens to us after we die? And on and on the questions go. And certainly it's a book for our times. It's a book that is relevant. Everyone on the planet goes through, experiences the kinds of things, the seasons, the changes, the times that we talked about last week in chapter 3 as we got into that chapter. Today our scripture reading continues in chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Last week we were told there is a time for everything and given many examples of that. All part of God's master plan unfolding in his own time. Now listen to the word of God as it comes to us from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 16 through 22. Hear the word of God with appreciation. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them and that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The grass withers and the flowers will fade, but this word from God will last forever. Let's ask God's blessing upon it. O Holy Spirit, will you come? And will you, Lord, illumine the truth of your word to our eyes and to our understandings and help us apply the engrafted word with meekness that it may yield in us the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We ask once again to see Jesus and understand, Lord, the truth of your word that we might 
walk more pleasing to you, that we might live our lives to your glory and before your face and with the joy that only you can give. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guessed it. Some of you already knew the title of today's sermon. Just based on the way we've been rolling into this. Some of you said, I know you're going to get to that point where, and you're going to quote. I said, yep, probably so. And you're not going to be disappointed. Dust in the wind. It's the title of the message today, yes. But it's also the name of a late 70s song by the rock group Kansas. Let me give you a a quick quote from one aspect. Same old song. Just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Now, the author of that, those lyrics, one of the uh, singers for uh, Kansas and that group. He was going through a time of searching, time of seeking, a time of inquiring about what was life all about. He'd know it out, visited this book. He didn't know a lot of answers, but he had a lot of questions. And he was musing in this song, particularly on the impermanence, the transitory nature of life, and particularly his own and others' mortality. This is a song musing about our own finiteness, limitedness, and our own impending death. Incidentally, two of the band members, John Elefante and one other, I can't remember his name, but later became Christians and followers of the Lord. A number of, number of years ago, uh, I got to hear them in a uh, concert over here, a, a, a semblance of the band, some of the real ones, some of the some uh, made-up ones over here in Destin, uh, and uh, it was still a pretty, pretty fun concert to listen to. Uh, but more about that idea of dust in the wind a little bit later, so hold on to that thought. So far in this study, we've seen, as we've gone through these first three chapters and almost now we'll be finishing up today, As we've gone through, what we've seen is Solomon has been on this multi-layered quest to find out what on earth, or as he says, under the sun, what in this the confines of this planet of life that is here and what you can see and what you can measure and what you can touch and what you can taste, all of this, what is it all about? Is there something that makes life worth living? And last week we saw in chapter 3 that God has an all-encompassing and perfectly timed plan that he is working according to his clock, not yours and mine or anyone else's. There are many seasons in life and God brings them. Some of those we experience, some of those we might escape, but ultimately most of them, they will come to us in God's own time. And today, the teacher, whether it's Solomon or a later day Solomon, 
using Solomon as a frame of reference and his experience, and as it were, speaking and stepping into his shoes. Whichever the case, the teacher is going to continue that theme. It's not really a different theme. It's still all about God and his timing and in his plan of what he is accomplishing under the sun. Today we continue that theme, but in a way that is a little bit surprising. Because right off the bat, we get some shocking news about injustice. And then we start talking about that dreaded theme of death. How is that got it? How does that fit in? Well, the dark clouds do have silver linings, as we're going to hopefully see today. Today's outline is this. The observation that the teacher makes, the demonstration, and the recommendation. So he's going to observe something, he's going to demonstrate something, and then he's going to make a recommendation to anyone who will listen, especially to the righteous and to the faithful. All right, let's dig in. Let's see what he has to say in this passage. Listen again to the first two verses, verses 16 and 17. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of the righteous, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Now, the opening phrase that he uses there, your translation may say moreover, and that's okay, but that doesn't quite show the linkage that you need to understand. This is very much tied to the previous verse in verse 15. This is not a hard break here. This is referring back to that. So really the better translation as the NIV does is, and I saw something else. In addition to what I've been saying and what I've been seeing and observing and perceiving, I saw something else. In other words, right along the same lines. So it's connected. It's linked in verse 15. Look back at verse 15. This is what it's linked to. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. That's the, again, the ESV. But the NIV gets at the the real heart of that a little bit better here. Sometimes different translations do a better job, I think, of capturing the essence. And basically, what you could say to summarize that is saying, what quickly gets away from us, God keeps track of, and he eventually calls things to account. It may seem like something's sliding on by, and somebody's getting away with something, but not forever. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be an accounting sooner or later. And so as the teacher looks at what he sees in the world of rampant injustice all around, and it's still all around us today, anywhere you go, as he looks at that, he sees terrible injustice, people being done wrong, people being unfairly treated, people being taken advantage of in all kinds of ways. And to make matters worse, what really, really troubled him and disturbed him was not just that it was happening, it's where it was happening. 
It was happening in the very courts of law that were supposed to dispense justice and deal with and change injustice and not let it happen. And it was happening in the temple, in the places of worship. There was injustice and corruption. So it's not just that it was happening in the world, it's the places of justice and righteousness in the courts and in the temple that was so troubling. To quote James Russell Lowell, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. That's what was troubling the writer here. But he also knows something else. Yes, as he looks upon that, and he knows that God, you read in the Old Testament particularly, book after book, God calls out an injustice and calls for an accounting and for a reckoning, says that he hates injustice, he hates oppression, etc. God says, that's where my heart is. And there will be, though, injustice in this world. Why? Because we're under the sun. It's fallen. And the writer understands that, but he knows that there will come a time of reckoning. The teacher, though distressed and troubled by its presence, he knew that why injustice and wickedness is here. It is partly to break man down from his vaunting arrogance and pride and make him look to God for the solutions and for answers. It breaks us down to realizing we can do nothing without except by the mercy and grace of God. We think we're self-sufficient. We think we're self-sustaining. But oppression, injustice, suffering, those things break us of everything that we would put our confidence in and our strength in. The teacher understood that. But he also understood that it is going to be a time in which that injustice that is here now in a fallen world is one day going to be righted. He knows that God has a plan to do something about it in his own time. It might be soon. It might use instruments in this world. Or it might come in the next. But it will come surely and inevitably. And we get a glimpse of that plan in verse 17. Also, listen to this from Psalm 37, 12, and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. In other words, God is saying, he's laughing, why? Metaphorically, because he knows you're not getting away with this. Either in time, or in eternity, it's going to be dealt with. Nothing's going to slide by God's eye. Nothing's going to escape his notice. There will be a day of reckoning and accounting. As the saying goes, it ain't over till it's over. A day comes and will come when God will deal with all injustice and unrighteousness. Acts 17.31, because why? He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. That's talking about Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, that's the, 
That takes the light of the New Testament to understand how this is fully going to be worked out. But that judge is going to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is going to judge the nations with righteousness and equity. Nothing will slide by. And the proof of it is God raised him from the dead. That's how we know. Justice is not always going to triumph. Wrong will not last forever, my friends. It will not. Now, the second thing is the demonstration. Look at verses 18 to 21. Here something is being demonstrated. Verse 18. And I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so the other dies. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust, and to dust will return. Who, go, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down? into the ground, question mark. Now, let me tell you what this does not mean. A lot of people jump on this. A lot of skeptics jump on this. See, see, we don't even know. You got to read the whole book. (laughs) There's a lot more said about the things that are brought up here. This is from one perspective, and it's with a very limited. It's not talking about all, all reality. It's talking about just what we see with our eyes. It's not what it's not talking about. In these verses, the teacher is demonstrating human mortality. That's what he's demonstrating. And th- but this does not say that people are nothing more than animals. That's been tried to be made out of this verse. That's not what it's saying at all. It's not comparing our intelligence to or our viability to animals. It's talking about the fact that we're going to end up in the same spot. As far as our flesh, it's going to end up in the same place. This is not saying anything about being more, uh, about uh, uh, saying nothing more. It's not saying we are animals or nothing more than animals. And it's not at all, it's, it's not speaking about that subject. And it also does not suggest that people like animals, I mean, excuse me, it does suggest, I'm getting this all, all confused. It is not talking about people being nothing more than animals. But it is talking about people dying like animals and decomposing into the ground, becoming dust. That's what it is saying. Psalm 49, uh, 12 says this, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perish. It's just saying you got the same, same end game in terms of your flesh. It doesn't say anything about your spirit or your soul. It's just talking about the part of us that you can cut with a knife and it'll bleed. You can cut an animal, you can cut us, and one day we're going to both be in the same position. That's what it's saying. They have a common impermanence, and they go to the same place, i.e. the grave. Verse 6 of chapter 6 in Ecclesiastes says that very thing. And repeats that idea. Note well also that in verse 21, the teacher is not denying that man's made in the image of God. How do we know that? Because this teacher knows his Bible very well. He knows what Genesis says. He already knows that. 
He's not talking about that. He's not denying that man is made in the image of God, nor is he denying the notion of eternal life or life after death. He's not at all even addressing that. Later, he does address it, by the way, and other places in the Bible address it in many places, both old and new. You see, here, what he is stating is that from a firsthand empirical observation, what you can see with your eyes, looking around at things, what do you see happening? From that limited perspective, you don't know when you stand over a human corpse and you stand over an animal corpse, you don't know where the soul of the spirit of that goes just from you standing over and looking at it. You don't have enough data. You don't know if it goes up, down, sideways, or nowhere. That's all he's saying. He's saying there is no, in terms of the corporal element, you don't know. But he's not saying it's not possible to know. It's not saying there's not, he's just saying with these eyes, from this perspective of only trying to see. And those people who go around saying, I only believe what I can touch, what I can taste, what I can feel, what I can see, and I'll believe nothing else. That's all he's saying here. But all we can see is not all there is. All we can see with our eyes, our touch and taste, is not all that there is. Elsewhere, the teacher observes that though the physical body dies and returns to dust, the spirit returns to God who made it. Verse 12, verse 7. And the dust, the same writer now, the dust returns to earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So he can't be saying, we don't know where, of course he knows where it's going. He knows it's going to return to God. And there's going to be an accounting. He knows that's going to happen. He's just talking about from that limited perspective. You see, under the sun, the reality is dust to dust. Under the sun, the reality is we're dust in the wind. But, but, in the sun, with an O, not a U, and with a capital S. In the sun, the believer's experience will be dust to glory. Dust to glory. No, we're not going to always be dust in the wind. All the time will come when we are. And who knows how long that time until our Lord returns. But when that day comes we will experience the same thing that he experienced. And did he rise in soul or body or both? He's the first fruits, the installment, the, the prototypical model of the new humanity in Christ. And one day, we who perish in our body, one day in a glorious way that we cannot even begin to understand or imagine, God will bring together what has been separated once again. New, glorious, and yet the same. Not looking the same, no. Different, more glorious, absolutely. But God will do that. We are more than dust in the wind in Christ. When the Vicomte de Turini was mortally wounded in the Battle of Salzburg, 
1675, laying there dying, he reflectively said, I did not mean to be killed today. I did not mean to be killed today. You know, I'm, to quote Billy Graham, the late, very late Billy Graham, the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. Hebrews 9, 27. Will you be ready when that time comes? Because we will face judgment. We will be summoned. We're not going to be annihilated. We're not going to, oh yeah, the body will collapse and crumble and turn to dust. But there will be an accounting of every spirit and soul. And are we ready for that? The last element here is a recommendation. It's kind of interesting. In in light of such a a morbid uh, subject matter of having to talk about the horrors of injustice and the evil and wickedness and wrongdoing, and then our own having to face our own mortality and realize we are not going to escape, we're not going to dodge the bullet of death, then all of a sudden, it's seemingly out of nowhere, the teacher has a recommendation. Look at verse 22. So, I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, the teacher recommends what he's already recommended two other times in chapter 2, verse 24, and chapter 3, verse 12. He recommends finding joy and satisfaction in life where we can in grateful recognition and dependence upon God, the giver of every good and perfect good gift, big and small. He recommends that. This verse tells us that God has a plan, and that plan involves our enjoyment. We're supposed to get something. God is redeeming. He is changing. He is buying back. He is fixing what happened in the fall in Christ, little by little, through the ages, making more and more the curse of this world. He's sending his blessings as far as the curse is found. And work, yes, was once beautiful and good, and then it was cursed and hard and difficult. But now, in redemption and what God is doing, work has now a meaning. It is something we do not unto ourselves or to others, but unto the Lord. And it brings him glory. And so the, the psalmist, I mean, the, the writer here, the teacher, is saying, enjoy your work and what God has given you. Now, here's what's interesting. Remember that parallel? We just did the beast a while ago, man, beast, as far as their flesh, no real essential difference. We're in that same spot. But I'll tell you a difference Revealed, it shows up here. In this portion, there's a big difference. You see, because we're not like the beasts in terms of enjoyment. We're not like the beasts in understanding gratefulness and gratitude. Yes, we're like them as already stated, physically, of flesh and blood that is mortal. But we can enjoy our labor and its fruits and our animals cannot. Now, I know my dog smiles. I know my dog is able to to experience joy. 
And when, when she does something that, that she knows that we're pleased with and she wants so much to please us, I'm absolutely sure. I can see the grin. Just come on over. You know, I'm absolutely certain of it. That's probably not true of your dog, but, but uh, anyway. But I know that. But you know what? My dog does not ever, after she does that trick, go over and sit down and think about, you know, that was really an amazing trick. That was really fun to watch how my parents' face lit up, muse and reflect upon that. You see, the animal can't do that. But we can because we're made in the image of God. And so what the psalmist is saying is you can sit and enjoy your labor and what its fruit is. You don't have to feel guilty if God has given. Use it wisely. Be good stewards of it. Give and share generously with others. Yes, all of that we're told elsewhere. But it's okay to sit down after you've worked like a Trojan, like my wife has in doing all the ceilings in our house and trying to do the floor and, and then sit down and look at that and say, that's very satisfying. Thank you, God. See, that's what he's talking about. Enjoy your labor. Why? Why is that true? Because for the believer, all these other things have already been handled. You know you have the stuff to face the judgment. And therefore, you're free to enjoy what is now until then. Yes, there are other callings and other responsibilities, but it's okay to enjoy. It is a wonderful thing to enjoy the fruit, to sit down after we work for something hard and long and to raise a glass of grape juice or wine as you prefer and thank God for what he has done and what he has given you and the friends and the family and enjoy that to the glory of God with gratefulness and a thankful heart. There is that that can be done and you know what? You can do that even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of people dying all around and even knowing that one day you're going to die if you're in Christ. If you know and you're not afraid to meet your maker and judge because judgment day has already come for those who have put their faith in Christ. He's already taken care of it. And so we can seize the opportunity. We can enjoy the moment from the perspective of enjoying life. Listen, think about it. If there's enough incentive to enjoy life under the sun. And that's what he's saying here when he doesn't have the full story and all the good news that we have now. When the full revelation comes in the gospel, we understand. And when Jesus has done it, he didn't have all of that. But if he could say then, if he had enough incentive, I know it's hard, I know there's injustice, I know, but still, thank God, enjoy life, enjoy your labor. Find joy in it. If he could say that then, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. How much more can we now, this side of the cross, now that light and immortality have been brought to life through Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead, and now that we can sing, Jesus lives and so shall I, Death, thy sting is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. 
He shall raise me with the just. Jesus is my hope and trust. You see, if we can now say that, how much more can we enjoy life? Because there is nothing to fear. The great sum of all fears holds nothing for me. And it holds nothing for any of you who are in Christ. You know why? You know why you can enjoy your labor? Because his labors have already done, been done. All this suffering ended, joyfully we sing, Jesus hath ascended, glory to our king. He's done it. He's finished it. His labors, his accomplishments, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection have brought us that peace, have brought us that enjoyment, that enjoyment because of his labors, not our own. May Jesus be praised forever. You think about that. Amen. Father, thank you. In the midst of this broken world, Lord, there, you, you've, you've tucked away things that can help us, even in, in, the, in the darkest of times. But Lord, we, we have so much more now because we know how you've solved the greatest fears and the greatest problems that this world and this under the sun offers. Lord, help us. Help us to, Lord, have faith and trust in your son who is presented in this sacrament now before us. This gospel that's preached here again in visible form. Feed us spiritually, Lord, today and help us rejoice in you and give thanks and enjoy our labors in Christ our Lord because he has done everything to make it possible in Jesus' name. Amen.